Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Pool Cleaner Hour. The episodes where I talk to you about various things of various stuff, and you can just hang out and relax in your mind's pool to cool off or heat up. Either way, it's your choice. I'm just here to make it comfy. This week we're going to be talking about the 1904 Olympic Marathon, probably something that maybe a couple of you have heard of, but it is a true cavalcade of shenanigans. It's infamous now amongst marathon runners or probably even sports enthusiasts, but it took place in St. Louis during the World's Fair, and it would be a running race of 24.85 miles with several notoriously steep hills. This was this was the US's first games event for the Olympic stage, so naturally it was doomed from the word go. It was just <laughs> There was no way. It was originally supposed to be in Chicago. But uh, we decided to change that to St. Louis to be presented alongside a colonialism-themed World's Fair that would feature reenactments of old wars and indigenous people on display. The much further inland location of St. Louis made travel exceedingly more difficult than the originally planned Chicago in 1904. So a lot of nations just didn't send people, and they threatened to hold their own version of the Olympics since the U.S. wanted to be so obnoxiously difficult. This was 1904, so planes hadn't been invented. Charles Lindbergh, the blimp guy, he hadn't yet uh, made his world train, his world-changing transatlantic flight, and the Wright brothers were still in the very early stages of working on their glider. So to get to St. Louis from, say, Europe, Africa, or Asia, it would require a ridiculously long boat ride and then a thousand-mile-long train ride. So just not everybody was down for that. It's a ridiculous ask, and frankly, it's it's the most aggressively American thing possible. And, and none of us should be surprised. It's America hosting, so naturally they want to be petulant and difficult because that's just who we are as a nation. So out of the entire globe, only 32 runners from seven different nations would show up. And although several of the runners were marathon stars and would often have their names shining in things like the Boston Marathon, the majority was a lot of randos who had never performed a full marathon or were specialist runners who competed in much shorter events like sprinting. Two of the competitors, Lynn Tuanyin and Jane Mashiani, were members of the South African Swana tribe who were in St. Louis because of the World's Fair. They would later in life go on to be known as the first black Africans to compete in the Olympics Games, though they had no idea of this at that time. They arrived here, though, ready to make their mark, and they would run this marathon in bare feet. Also joining the 32 runners was Frank Pierce from the Seneca Nation, and this would make him the first Native American to compete in the Olympics. This next guy, mailman and wildcard Felix de la Cardad Caraval, arrived in long pants, long socks, and a long sleeve shirt with a dashing mustache. Taking pity on this soon-to-be heat-stricken man, a New York police officer and discus thrower, Martin Sheridan tracked down a pair of scissors and snipped Carvajal's pants at the knee, turning them into makeshift running shorts. This, this this race, guys. So it's going to take place during the absolute boiling 90 degree heat. And humidity was also recorded at 90%. So you know when it's so humid you feel like you can swim through the air or like cut it with a machete? That is, that's what's going on here. 
The racers, they're not fitted for this event at all. It wasn't just Felix who arrived pretty unprepared. There were 32 men, and they're all dressed largely in white, past-their-knee shorts with leather belts. They're gathered around other people who wore button-up suit shirts or pork pie hats. The course was unpaved. It was covered in the dust of freshly flattened down pathways, and the race wasn't even going to start until 3 p.m., when the sun would notoriously be at its highest peak. So, you know, like, a modern marathon is held on closed streets to prevent the obvious issues of interference by random citizens or whatever the case may be. This was not how it was going to go down in 1904, and it was certainly not going to be the case in this marathon of nonsense. These runners would have to sidestep cars, horses, trolleys, trains, and pedestrians all on open dirt roads. Just the f most sheerest form of a shit show possible. And... <laughs> And you just know that the entire time these people are lining up, there's got to be some southern honky jamboree blue playing music the whole time. <laughs> oh, oh, and the, uh, during the 25 miles that they'd be running, they were told there was going to be one singular water stop. Just one spot to get a gulp of water. And this is because the notorious racist jackass James E. Sullivan, the head of the physical cultural department for this World's Fair, not only wanted to make this race a soapbox for his own white supremacy beliefs, but would double down on this stupidity with a theory that purposeful dehydration was good for the body. Sullivan also would set up a series of events at this World Fair where he wanted to showcase white excellence by having white Americans compete in sports with other countries against other races that they had never tried before. And naturally, that worked out about like you'd expect. So the gun goes off. And we also have joining in this race. There's a professional clown. There's a slaughterhouse worker. There's a bricklayer. And some old war reenactors. Things that start out pretty normal, even though people pretty much immediately began getting overwhelmed with the heat and their bodies within the first few miles started cramping. Leading this race, though, <laughs> before, before the people can even fully get some momentum going with their feet, in front of them are journalists on horses, doctors, and support teams, which, if the track was maintained properly, might have been nice, but it wasn't. So all these guys did was completely cover the racers in dust in the already sweltering 90-degree heat, just immediately blanketing these people and totally destroying the air. Because the very new-to-the-world automobile was out and about. And people were excited, and they were excited to see them. They were excited to drive them. Unfortunately, though, emission regulations were not yet even considered a thing. And if you brought it up, you were probably called some derogatory slur and sent on your way. So exhaust fumes were just pumping away into the runners, as well as the people gawking at them and nearly hitting the runners as they were driving. Driving these cars was a brand new thing, and even though they didn't go really fast, people were still people, and as they are today, very bad at driving. At one point, two officials had to swerve their car to avoid a runner, and they ended up in a ditch. They hit the ditch so hard that it was reported that they acquired serious bodily injuries. The 1903 Boston Marathon champion, so the year before, was an Irish-American named John Lorden, and he was the first to begin vomiting until he was forced to leave the track. After him was California runner William Garcia, who swallowed so much dust that he nearly died from a catastrophic stomach hemorrhage. Garcia was in fourth place, but soon found himself on the side of the road. He was puking up blood until he passed out in the dust under the baking sun. 
Thankfully, he was found by a few staff members before he died, and he was rushed to the hospital. He would spend the next while in surgery, where they found out his esophagus was caked in dust, as well as it had fully torn his stomach lining from all the heaving and the coughing. So, like, when you pull an air vent out after winter, and it's got that, like, inches of dust, that's what this dude's inside of his throat looked like. Uh, Lynn, one, the guy from Africa, was actually doing reportedly well. The heat didn't really bother him, and he was keeping a steady pace. But then, <laughs> out of nowhere, a pack of wild dogs began attacking him. They chased him for over a mile off the course, deterring him massively until he could finally flee to his safety. Uh, our Cuban competitor, Felix Carvajal, was keeping at a decent pace. This, <laughs> this dude who had his pants snipped by the nice policeman reportedly hadn't eaten for 40 hours. Carvajal had raised the money to get here by performing running demonstrations back home and being a great showman here in cash via charming panhandling. But, <laughs> but this guy, right? This guy, he got his boat trip to Louisiana, but then he gambled all the rest of his money away in New Orleans during a layover, and he had to hitchhike the rest of the way to St. Louis. He was warmly greeted, and his natural friendliness made him a quick fan favorite. He kept stopping during the race to talk to fans and give journalists quotes. Even though he had been seen swiping peaches from a car he passed to the shock of many onlookers. He simply laughed, waved, and ran off with his stolen goods. However, the hunger pains kicked in harder, and he made his way to an apple orchard. Unfortunately for him, the apples were rotten, and the stomach cramps that ensued caused the athlete to lie helpless by the side of the road, where he proceeded to take a nap. The first and only water stop was going to be at the 12-mile mark, and that's where racist Sullivan was waving red flags for everybody to see. Even after this disastrous marathon, Sullivan would still hold firm to his belief that not eating and not drinking anything was best for running, although he did say in a later book that one could if they wanted, it just wasn't beneficial. By mile number 16, the leading racer got confused. He thought he was lost between the scorching heat and the dehydration. This poor man, Samuel Meller, who had placed in top ranks at the Boston Marathon twice and had won the Pan-American Exposition, turned around and began running in the complete opposite direction of the finish line. After running the wrong way for way too long, his body succumbed to cramps and naturally he was just over the whole thing. And he said, fuck it, I'm done. And he dropped out. So Thomas Hicks, now in the lead, this guy, not doing too great. He found his support team and he was begging them for water. His body was cramping. His brain is shutting down. But his trainers, who were comfortably driving next to him in a car, said, nah. But they did, they did say, hey, we'll give you your shoulders a sponge bath. We'll help cool you down. But uh, the water for this sponge, where did it come from? Oh, they took it from the steam that came from the boilerplate of their fucking car. <laughs> So, <laughs> just a boiling hot sponge. This dude's dying, and they're like, ah, here you go, we'll give you a, a boiling sponge bath. So, now a man named Fred Lords, he was getting pretty tired. And this was like two miles before the water station, so this is this is way back. This is like four miles behind uh, our, our dude getting the sponge bath. So, what Fred decided to do was, hey, let's hitch a ride in a car, and we'll just relax for 11 miles. We'll have food, drinks, and we'll think, hey, everybody's stupid except for me. But to his credit, he hopped out at the last mile to one to run one legitimate mile. But technically, this was only because the car reportedly broke down. So he finished in first place, and he was basking in the glory of the win when he got there in under three hours. But then the daughter of the current U.S. president, Theodore Roosevelt, 
Alice Roosevelt called him out on his bullshit in front of everyone. She was like, hey, jackass, we all saw you. What are you doing? Loris swore he meant it as a joke because the race was nonsense to begin with and he claimed he was never going to keep the surprise. But he couldn't be heard because the crowd, led by Alice, overwhelmed him with booing. Eventually, people did come forward. They said, hey, we saw Lors. He was actively waving to people from his car. He was cracking jokes. He was hanging out on the sidelines. You know, we were all chilling out, just having a good time. We don't think he actually meant this. People really liked this guy. A lot of people were here just for this guy. So after the shock of his cheating wore off, things were pretty chill. His joke, be it real or not, technically did lead to him being banned from official marathons for life. But that was overturned in less than a year because people really wanted to see him in the Boston Marathon. And after some time passed, people barely counted this marathon as legitimate anyway. Lors went on to honestly win that next Boston race where he would get first place. But today, he is booed off stage by the president's daughter. And uh, he's, he's just sitting there now wondering if the joke is worth it, wondering why he's here. But, you know, I, at the end of the day, he probably thought it was worth it because this is ridiculous. All right, so coming in to claim real first place, it's our boy Thomas Hicks, our boy with the sponge bath. But he's doing even worse. Instead of water, his trainers have been giving him, you know, egg whites and uh, rat poison, which in smaller doses what's considered an ample stimulant, as in rat poison. This event is considered the first time someone ever used performance-enhancing drugs. And now it's prohibited for athletic use. But Hicks right now, he's hallucinating. He's, he's very certain he still has 20 miles left in the race. And uh, it's two miles left. And the last two miles of this hill are all uphill. Because fuck y'all. His trainers gave him more rat poison. And instead of water, they told him to swish it down with brandy. So... <laughs> <laughs> so he walked the rest of the way and he finished first somehow in the slowest pace marathon in history at three hours and 28 minutes and this was only possible because he had to be mostly carried over the finish line but come on this dude's on rat poison he's been bathed in boiling hot water it is still a 90 degree day his insides are filled with dust just the fact that he's finishing is amazing Charles Lucas, a race official, said this about seeing the half-dead Hicks. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. When Hicks was being held upright by his trainers at the podium, he was still moving his legs as if he was meant to continue running. They reported as well during the course of this race that Hicks had lost a horrifying eight pounds. Albert Corey, a man we haven't mentioned yet, he came in, uh, finished at three hours and 34 minutes. He had a fine time. Carvajal, who awoke from his rotten fruit-induced nap, came in fourth somehow. During this race, this wild card of a man had already made a bigger name for himself, reaching near folk hero status. He won the sympathy of the crowd in the stadium and raised his hat each time he passed by a stand, the St. Louis Republic stated. This guy, this dude, man, he had no handlers. He had no doctors. He had no trainers, no strategy, no sustenance. This man came in, rolled in, not eating for 40 hours after gambling away all of his money, and he just walks in in fourth place. Reporters said he worked on his English skills as he talked with him, and at some points he would even run backwards so he could continue having his conversation as he passed. 
Uh, Lynn, the dude that was chased a mile off course by wild dogs, came in ninth place. Insane. No official times were recorded of the very last racers, but it was said that it took several more hours for everybody to trickle in. And by everybody, I mean 14 people, because out of the 32 runners, only 14 actually finished the full marathon. So the race was over, and the papers went into a frenzy. They labeled it as a man-killing event. And it became, <laughs> this is an Avengers-level event. And it became so notorious that the marathon was almost barred from being an Olympic sport ever again. America could not have botched this up more unless they had somebody on the track literally shooting at the competitors. Which, frankly, I'm kind of surprised they didn't do. So the, uh, the Sullivan guy, that idiot bigot, he would go on to say that this somehow proved he was right about white supremacy. Even though he quickly turned on his own event and said, well, a 25-mile run is just asking too much of a human endurance. Humans, uh, humans can't do it. Not turning his stance on the whole water and food thing still and saying, you know what? Maybe if they hadn't drank as much, it'd be fine. The dude was a special breed of stupid. Many of the racers went on to continue doing other marathons. Uh, Carvajal, he was invited to actually come race in Greece because people loved him. He gained sponsorship from the Greek government to run a marathon at Athens in 1906, but he never arrived at the race, and newspapers in his home country proclaimed him dead. But a year later, he was found safe and well in Havana. To this day, no one has a record of where he was for that missing year. But after being officially announced dead, including obituaries in his paper, he shrugged it off and he continued a legacy of racing. Hicks, who ran the race with the uh, rat poison and the egg whites and the brandy, he was done. He was done racing. He took the W and he vanished into obscurity like most of the racers, including um, our boys who went back home to Africa, who never gave an official account of their thoughts. But I imagined, um, I imagined they weren't too impressed with the uh, American standards and being chased by dogs. Uh, today, there's actually a very nice iron and stone gate dedicated in honor of the 1904 Olympic Games and these racers. In 2004, there was an Olympic Centennial Women's Marathon race through the same Francis Field. Although today it's in much better shape and people weren't driving on the tracks and being absolutely obnoxious. Second place winner, Dina Castor, described the scenery as spectacular. Marathons were regulated after this event to 26 miles, although people would still argue about the necessity of water. Runners continued to sip rat poison, brandy, and even champagne in its place. The victor of the 1908 marathon, John Hayes, said this when asked how he endured the pace with no water. Well, I merely bathed my face with cologne and gargled my throat with brandy. It was just, uh, it was different times, guys. Different, different times. Um, so that's, that's the 1904 Olympic marathon race. It's absurd. And I kind of wish there was a movie about it. And there's not even much you'd have to dramatize. It's already so obnoxious. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Um, I know it's a little cheerier than last time. Uh, I know the last episode was a bit of a downer, so I want to do something really fun. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please let me know. I've, I've been getting a ton of great feedback you guys have been giving me a lot of love, and I really appreciate it. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at TinkerBuff underscore, or if you want to see a bunch of my movie reviews, you can follow me on Letterboxd at just TinkerBuff. All right, guys. You guys have a, a good week, and I'll see you next Monday.